Bonjour. Grüezi. Buongiorno. Bundi. Do you know the name of these four languages? Est-ce que vous aimez les chips faifalo paprika, l'ovo maltine, ou peut-être le cenovis? Sapete dove il ticino? Haben Sie schon ein St. Galler Bratwurst mit Burli genossen? Do you recognize this jingle? If you answered yes to some of these questions and you don't live in Switzerland, you may be part of the more than 700,000 Swiss citizens who live abroad. Congratulations! This podcast is for you and for the ones who stayed inland but are curious to learn more about why you left, I know, that sounds crazy, and other irrelevant questions. Welcome to Fifth Switzerland, La Cinquième Suisse. I'm your host, Valérie. Welcome to my brand new podcast, Fifth Switzerland. I'm very happy to introduce you my first guest, John, alias Hans Petter, who left Switzerland when he was 21 to pursue his dream to work in a zoo. I had a psychologist once analyze me when I was at a gymnasium, try to figure out why I was only interested in zoology, geography, and stuff like that. <laughs> he told my parents I had a one-track mind. Your son can only think about animals. <laughs> His lifelong passion for animals has led him to a life of adventure across the world. The same day that I received a telegram, I also received a letter from Peter Reinhardt notifying me that he would stop sending me money to live in Rangoon, Burma, that I should either figure out how to get the talk in and get it to the Basel Zoo or leave Rangoon on my own. And in the U.S., where he became Jan and managed two different zoos. So I arrived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with less than one U.S. dollar in my pocket. No money in a bank, no money in a savings account. I was technically broke. You may wonder how Swiss he can be after a life away from Basel. Now, one thing I have to tell you about what happens. I grew up in Switzerland and then left Switzerland after with 21 years of age. And so I never lost my Swissness. <laughs> if you try to figure out what that is. But I think of myself as being Swiss-American. Swiss first, American second. Now it's time to relax and enjoy your story. Jan, welcome to my podcast. Well, thank you. Very interested to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not me, it's you we want to hear because... I was really struck by your story. It's very adventurous. So you were born in 1934 in Basel. While you were at the gymnasium, you had a biology teacher who got you interested in animal life. Well, from a very early age on, uh, Valerie, what I remember very distinctly, I became very interested in Basel Zoo. We lived right next to the Basel Zoo. It only took us 10, 15 minutes to walk down to the entrance of the zoo, and we had annual passes. And so I spent a lot of time as I was growing up, and particularly in my teens later on, 
at the zoo after school hours and on weekends and became very closely associated and uh, acquainted with uh, Professor Dr. Heidegger, who was a director at the Basel Zoo at that time. So that's how my mindset was from very early age. Animals, animals, animals. When I was 10 years old, my grandfather Roth gave me the first animal book for Christmas. And it was called Der Kleine Brain. And the Kleine Brain was a miniature dictionary of animals. And that became my Bible. Even before I became a teen, at age 10, I was so interested in animals that I started reading everything I could. I had a psychologist once analyze me when I was at a gymnasium, trying to figure out why I was only interested in zoology, geography, and stuff like that. <laughs> he told my parents, I had a one-track mind. Your son can only think about animals. <laughs> Heidegger was really a mentor to me. He was the kind of person that when he saw me somewhere standing at an exhibit, he would walk up and start talking to me and explaining to me about the behavior of the animals and what I should be looking at and studying. And in the course of that, in my later teens, I actually participated in actual field studies and helped his students from the university to record information about the behavior of their animals, particularly the primates, the Java macaques. So I learned an awful lot about that. But primarily, I tried to get employment at uh, Jews in Switzerland, of course. And since Professor Hediger was the uh, original director at uh, Berndal-Hölzli, and then the Basel Zoo, and eventually Zurich. I uh, tried to get his help to find me um, some employment and get started. However, none of that panned out. He eventually, after many discussions I had with him, he told me I should try to write to some American Jews and see whether they would offer me a job. He also tried to discourage me, interestingly enough, to want to work at the zoo. He said, if they hire you, they hire you as a zookeeper and you have to start at the very bottom and work your way up. And I kept saying, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> it ended up to be an offer from the Philadelphia Zoo for junior zookeeper. I jumped on it and I got my immigration visas to the United States so I could work and I was not restricted to any period of time. So I was ready to emigrate Switzerland at that point. So then at that time, of course, you didn't have internet. You wrote to all the, the American zoo you could find to ask for a job? Well, one of the things is I knew very little about what to expect. We didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones where we could talk to people all around the world. I just took my chances, packed up and left on an adventure. That's not the first adventure I've been on. I mean, during my growing up years, I spent several trips out of Switzerland. And usually we did that friends of ours on bicycles down to the Comarque, you know, the Rhone Delta, 
where the flamingos were breeding and we studied the flamingo colony. And then uh, we took a trip to Sicily on our bicycles. We took our bicycle and the train all the way to Palermo and traveled around Sicily on bicycles. And that was our mode of transportation. My first car was here in the United States when I bought an old Pontiac here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> but anyway, just to give you an idea that I was very determined from young age to go somewhere else in the world other than Switzerland because I wasn't afforded the opportunity in Switzerland to actually work with animals. That's what I wanted to do. From the gymnasium, I did five years there and then decided not to do another three years in order to gain entry to the university level, but I wanted to go to work. My father wanted me to be a banker because my father worked for Swiss Bank Corporation. And of course, that became UBS. If I had done that, I would have been a banker. I didn't want to do that. I was interested in travel besides animals. So on my own, walked into Natural RG, which was an international freight company, and did imports, exports, and they hired me. And then I decided to do the apprenticeship in business administration with the Kaufmannischen Verein for Basel, at that time it was called. That's where I got my degree, rather than a degree in zoology. Eventually, the interesting thing is, my combination of that background, along with my experience with animals, made me a suitable candidate to become an administrator of a zoo, and then eventually director. I was director of two different zoos in here in the United States, and had a great amount of influence on how the future of those zoos came out eventually. Do you remember what your parents said when you said that you were going to live and work in a zoo in America? My parents were apprehensive. They were nervous for me to leave, but they, they didn't discourage me. My mother very much encouraged me because she knew my adventurous spirit. I wanted to learn things and I wanted to do all kinds of things. However, they thought that in a couple of years, I'd be back. <laughs> <laughs> What were your first impressions when you arrived in the United States? you remember? I went to the United States. I read a couple of books, obviously, that told me that money grows on trees in America. And, of course, that's the first thing I looked for is that trees, I couldn't find any money. <laughs> <laughs> I found a lot of trees at the Philadelphia Zoo, <laughs> They didn't pay me in money. They paid me in peanuts because I had to take care of the elephants. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I want to tell you, I was a jazz lover, Dixieland jazz. Friends of mine, we had a little Dixieland group that we used to march down the Freierstrasse in Basel every Saturday night and play Dixieland music. And I played the washboard. So when I came to the United States, I thought I would find a jazz club at every corner. But that wasn't true. There were very few places when I arrived in 1956. One famous one was Count Basie's, and he had his own club. And let me tell you an interesting story. It was a black club for black people only. 
and the white people didn't go in there. So I drove my scooter up and started listening to the band. And I told one of the fellows out there, he said, you know, I met Count Basie when he gave a concert in Basel, Switzerland. And I would like to go in and say hello to him. And the guy says, all right, fellow, I tell you what, I'll buy you one beer. And when your beer is done, you leave. And he took me inside. I was the only white fellow in jazz club. And those are memories that are unique to me. I mean, I had no uh, apprehension at all to, to talk to any people, no matter who they were, and get to do what I wanted to do. When you arrived in Philadelphia, what struck you? What was very different from Switzerland, what you had known before? Well, one of the interesting memories I have is that people seemed very forthright and very easy to talk to. My English was not very good at that time. I went to took night courses to study and actually got a certificate at the end. It took three years of that. I had to learn an English vocabulary because I was still thinking in Switzerland, you know, and in German <laughs> or French or whatever. When I started dreaming in English and I woke up and I remembered what I said in English, I knew I was beginning to master the language. <laughs> I, I was very happy to be in Philadelphia. I liked the city. I, I felt very much at home. You stayed two years in Philadelphia. Then you went back to Switzerland to visit your family. And what happened then? Well, when I went back to Israel, my father, a kind man, he realized that I was dead set on staying with the animal business, with the zoo business. And I really had no intention coming back to work for uh, international transports or even at the bank. He couldn't convince me to do that. About that time, Basel had a famous, I call it a pet store, It was called the Aquarium Basel, and it was a big establishment that had tropical fish and everything. And the lady that owned the shop was ready to sell it. My father wanted to buy the shop for me to come back to Switzerland and run. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I told him, uh, you know, I'm going to see what happens with the uh, animal collection business, and I may stay with Pedro for as long as I can. And if that doesn't pan out, I'll go back to the United States. In 1968, you worked for a few months for an animal collector. So what did you do exactly for him? Well, he had an animal collection that he assembled in Singapore. And he had a friend who was in charge of the American Express office in Singapore. He owned a farm or a ranch out in the country where they uh, collected animals to send to zoos around the world. And Peter Reiner worked with him, and I took care of his animal collection at that time. He had some baby elephants, he had some uh, gibbons and uh, different animals, some birds and baby orangutans and animals like that. But eventually Peter sent me to uh, Rangoon because under contract with the Basel Zoo, He also was supposed to supply a pair of uh, talking, that's T-A-K-I-N, 
It's a hoofed animal from the northern mountains of Burma in the Cochin state. I was supposed to go there, get that female that they had that he wanted to buy, check it out and let him know that he could pay for it. But it turned out that prior to my arrival in Rangoon, there was a coup and the military took over the government and everything was upside down. I was not able to get permits to travel from Rangoon to the northern part of that country because another group was already up there. They were from New York, from the Bronx Zoo, and they were two zoologists who studied animals up there in that territory. Turned out the Bronx Zoo sent money and paid for that one female talking that Peter Reiner wanted to buy for the Basel Zoo. Well, once I notified Peter of that, and he realized that he couldn't get any talkings, they tried to have me smuggle some talking out of the out of Burma. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do anything illegal. But anyway, that was the end of my employment with uh, Peter. The way I got to Albuquerque, I had a friend in Philadelphia who traveled to the Southwest and visited the zoo in Albuquerque, and he put an application in for him and myself to work at that zoo whenever they had an opening. And the funny thing is, they picked me without an interview to take the position of an assistant director because of my background in business administration. The man that sent me the telegram, his name was Dr. Evo Poglayan. Turns out that he and his wife, Inge, both came from Vienna, Austria. And I guess that's why they were happy to employ somebody that was from Switzerland. They wanted another European to join them. How things happen in life, you never know. Coincidences and a lot of luck. Luck to be in the right place at the right time and luck to have the right contacts at the right time. The same day that I received the telegram, I also received a letter from Peter Reiner notifying me that he would stop sending me money to live in Rangoon, Burma, that I should either figure out how to get the talk in and get it to the Basel Zoo, or leave Rangoon on my own, that I was no longer employed by him. Well, it was easy for me to accept a job in Albuquerque. So I ended up going back to New York City. I had a scooter with me, the scooter I bought in Philadelphia. <laughs> you brought your scooter from Philadelphia to Switzerland and then from Switzerland to Burma? I purchased an NSU electric starter scooter when I lived in Philadelphia. That was my mode of transportation. I took it with me to Switzerland. I had a ship to Singapore. I had a ship from Singapore to Rangoon. I drove all of Rangoon during the monsoon season, holding an umbrella and driving my scooter. <laughs> <laughs> and then I shipped that scooter to New York City. And when I got to New York City, I picked up the scooter, drove to Philadelphia, and arranged to have my belongings shipped to Albuquerque by train. And I left Philadelphia 
and I went to Albuquerque, not knowing what to expect there. Talking about an adventurous young spirit. Yeah, and you went from Philadelphia to Albuquerque on your scooter. So I arrived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with less than one U.S. dollar in my pocket. No money in a bank, no money in a savings account. I was technically broke. I had like 76 cents in my pocket. And that's it. And I was there for four years until I then decided to leave Albuquerque for various reasons and uh, accept a job in Atlanta, then became the director at the Atlanta Zoo. I left Atlanta after almost three years of experience, and I left the Atlanta Zoo for a number of reasons. I had several objectives. One of them I accomplished very successfully, and that was my primary objective, to connect a zoo in the United States with a major primate research center and begin the cooperative effort to breed gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans in a zoo environment for propagation. And when I got to Atlanta, I contacted the Yerkes Regional Primate Center, which was part of Emory University. The director was very interested, and we eventually worked out a written agreement for permanent breeding loans for an entire family group of orangutans at the zoo in Atlanta. And their behavioral psychologists that studied that group were able to do that at the zoo environment that we provided for them. That was my major accomplishment. Many zoo directors around the country uh, were amazed that I was able to pull that off. But that was my main, main reason to go to Atlanta for. My other reason was that they promised me millions of dollars that uh, they had allocated for new zoo de development. I definitely wanted to change that zoo. It was old-fashioned cages. Animals didn't have access to outdoor quarters or natural habitat or anything. And I wanted to do all of that. And that was all of my ambition. And when, when, of course, when all of that fell through, I didn't want to stay there and just take care of what I call the status quo situation. So where did you take your inspiration to change these zoos and to make reforms? Well, that's all Hedegaard. Hedegaard wrote two famous books, are the ones called Wild Animals in Captivity and Man and Animal in the Zoo. And those two books, I promulgated to everybody that I came in contact with in the zoo world. You have to read these books because they were translated into English. I read them in German before some of them, my zoo colleagues admitted to me. They became the Bibles. Hedegaard's books became the total inspiration on how certain American Jews changed the format and taking care of animals and how to preserve and conserve my life in all around the world now. How come Hedegaard, this professor in Switzerland, was so innovative and modern? Well, Hedegaard created the concept that he called zoo biology, based on all the books he's written. And today, if you ask some of them 
folks in American zoos, they subscribed to the concept and the study of zoo biology. You look at the Zurich and Basel zoos and even Dal Hulsley recently, they're amazing operations. And they're fortunate they got the money to do it. talking about uh, how Swiss do you still think? Well, today, obviously, I have to tell you, is a day that I think about Switzerland, because it's my sister's 82nd birthday. Talking about being Swiss, I'm going to eat Rösti. You're going to eat what? Rösti. Oh, Rösti. Oh, great. What Rösti is, don't you? Yes, yes, I did that two days ago to my son, you see. I make at least one roasty dinner a week. What I also do, I cook my own risotto, but I do fix it with curry, with curry flavor. Uh, That's not very Swiss then. (laughs) It's a curried risotto. I mean, you know, you can fix it with tomatoes too and all that, like my mother used to do, but but I fix my own risotto. So, you know, that's Swiss. No, I haven't lost my Swissness at all. I I don't know. It's funny when I think about it. But Now, one thing I have to tell you about what happens. I grew up in Switzerland and then left Switzerland after with 21 years of age. And so I never lost my Swissness. If you try to figure out what that is, if anybody tells you, well, I'm no longer a Swiss, I'm an American. In my case, I can't say that. I don't think of myself that way. If I had grown up in America, second generation, but I think of myself as being Swiss-American, Swiss first, American second, and I have citizenship to both countries. I'm very proud of that, actually. But the one problem is, in some cases, people that I got acquainted with, they don't think of me as an American either. They think of me this foreigner. And particularly when I was living in the state of Georgia, the deep south (laughs) in Atlanta, that was a thing that annoyed me so much. I was always thought of as this foreigner. What is he trying to tell us? How is he trying to change the zoo? We don't like what he wants to do. And that's from the politicians in City Hall, you know, that I had to deal with. So anyway, uh, I don't mind telling you that. In New Mexico, I was better accepted than anywhere in in the United States. Even in Philadelphia, of course, I still was a Swiss citizen. So they called me Hans Peter. They didn't know what Hans Peter was. So they call me Hans. So that name kind of stuck with me, except that some people always thought, get this, I was German. And if anything annoyed me more, it was being called a German. (laughs) I definitely, I was Swiss, as Swiss as you can be. 
And I didn't want to be called a German. I grew up during the bad years of Hitler and all that stuff. And I listened to his speeches on the radio. We all did. And it's still a very vivid memory on what happened during those years. And I definitely didn't want to be identified with being German. <laughs> so I changed my name. When I became a citizen in Albuquerque, from Hans to John, and became two names, John Peter Roth. And still today, that's the name I use. As a matter of fact, in Switzerland, I'm registered like that now. So, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I never left my Swissness. Went many trips to Switzerland. I was married twice in my life. This is after the zoo business. When I was in the zoo business, I was married to the animals. <laughs> I didn't have time for wives. But after I left that business in so-called retirement, I got married. I lost my first wife after a few years. She had heart problems. I met my second wife in Hawaii. Oh. <laughs> she was from North Carolina. That's why I ended up in North Carolina. If you think of Switzerland, what are the things that you could miss? Well, what I personally miss... At this point in my game, I cannot travel. I wish I was younger and could still do that because I would like to go see what happened at Zurich and Basel and Bern, the three zoos I consider the best zoos in Europe. So I miss that. I miss Switzerland. I love to drive around Switzerland. I took both of my wives on two trips with both of them to Switzerland at different times. Do you still follow what's happening in Switzerland? Yes, I do. I like to hear about it. When I used to have the uh, Swiss Review, I used to enjoy reading that. There for a while, it was online. I was able to read it online. All I get right now is the occasional emails. And I enjoy reading that. I like to know about it. And when I follow the Olympics, I, I want to see what the Swiss do. Winter Olympics, particularly. I want to see what our skiers doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're still Swiss, in fact. <laughs> Definitely. I, I never miss that. It's not very often that I meet somebody who spent so much time with so many different animals in his life. Yeah. And I wanted to, to know what you have learned from being with animals? Well, uh, you know, I think I mentioned that when I was in Switzerland through Heidegger, I became acquainted with what his main studies were, the comparative psychology of animals versus man. And his emphasis every time he talked with me was just think of, we're thinking about the animals, think about what the animals thinks about us. And of course, the, the interesting thing to me is that animals have memories. The more intelligent uh, an animal brain is, take about elephants. You know, people say elephants never forget. That is true. Their memory is totally amazing. And so it is with primates, gorillas, chimps, bonobos, and orangutans, like the little orangutan in Philadelphia, Christine, 
I think, I mean, I don't know whether she's still alive, but if she was, and I go to the Birmingham Zoo, that animal will probably look at me and suddenly say, eh, and I know who this guy is. It happened to me with a gorilla, Sandy. She was sent to the zoo in Los Angeles because she didn't breed with Moko. Moko and Sandy, let me tell you about those two gorillas. They were about a year old when they arrived, each in a separate crate. And when we put them together inside the exhibit that we had built for them, Sandy immediately ran over and grabbed Moko, and they hung on together for dear life. And the two of them remembered me all the time later because I spent a lot of times with them inside their habitat and played with them. And I taught my keepers the same thing. You could talk to them. Now, they wouldn't talk back in a human language, but uh, I believe in the brain, a lot of things went on that they remembered and they understood and they could follow direction. Usually as a zoo visitor, you really don't have any idea what's happening to animals. And are you, are you optimistic? Because now they speak a lot about climate change. Are you optimistic about the fact that we can preserve uh, animals and habitats and nature? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we know a lot more today than we did 100 years ago, if you think about it. I was born in 1934. In 2034, I bet you in 2034, there'll be a Swiss astronaut studying on the moon. <laughs> they'll have a camp up there. There'll be a Swiss astronaut up there by the name of Hans Peter. <laughs> studies, studies the rest of the universe. I'm so geared to what future brings that I'd love to be around in the future. And I think I will be. I first have to leave this body behind. I gotta get rid of this because this is no longer good. If I was in better health, I'd do all kinds of things. I would come to Switzerland and maybe find me another wife in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I can't do that. If you had something now to say to young Swiss people who think perhaps of going abroad, what would you tell? I would say any young person that entertains the idea like I did, having the adventurous mind that I had, I would think, yes, pursue your interests and hope to have the support of your family. And if you don't have it, leave anyway. <laughs> and experience life, whatever life brings you. I had no guarantee that I would ever stay in the animal business after Philadelphia. I could have gone back to Switzerland and gone back to being in the freight business and do shipments of Swiss cheese to the United States or watches to Argentina or whatever it was that we exported. That was what I was trained for. As a matter of fact, Natural gave the director when, they, when I left Basel, he couldn't understand why I wanted to go work with animals. <laughs> he know what he said to me in Swiss, what do you want to do with all you learned here at our, with us? 
you want to shovel shit the rest of your life? Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, I don't want to do that. He said, if you don't want to do that, why do you want to go to work in the zoo? <laughs> I not only worked in zoos, I also, when I left Atlanta, and I organized my own transport company. I hired some, you know, temporary help to, uh, to go on some trips. But we moved uh, rhinos for the Lion Country safaris that were imported from South Africa to New York City on planes and then were loaded on trucks and transported to Virginia, Ohio, Georgia, Florida, wherever the Lion Countries were. And I moved a lot of rhinos. I moved giraffe. I specialized in transporting giraffe. I also transported elephants. And so you stopped this business because you went for another job in a zoo. I had an animal transport company for five years. But then I had an offer to come back to Albuquerque. Harry Kinney was a personal friend of mine. He contacted me. He said, John. I need your help. Come back to Albuquerque and help me straighten out the zoo. We got to get going and continue building the zoo. So I decided to went back and work for him as an associate director. And then I stayed with Albuquerque all the many years that I needed to, to reach retirement. I have a retirement from the state of New Mexico. I'm glad I have because I'm able to live that way. The idea of the fifth Switzerland. I'm a typical example of what happens to some people in the fifth Switzerland, you know. Exactly. You are a perfect example. But John, I would like to really thank you very much for all the stories you told me. You are a very good storyteller, I have to say. Uh, have you already done some? Uh, am I the first one? For the fifth Switzerland, you are the first one, yes. <laughs> what a story. You see? It's such a good story that it will be hard to find other people like you. Thank you, John. I love it. I'm anxious to see what you can do with that. <laughs> <laughs> And meanwhile, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, John. Bye.